Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and why. This week on Wind Up Weekly, we've got the latest news on the 2019 harvest. Picking begins in Bordeaux and the Rhone, yields down in Champagne. Profitability of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc down, despite increased exports. And a spotlight on England. Record production in 2018, prospects for 2019, and our wine of the week is English Fizz. So let's begin with our week in wine. And Katie, you attended a conference which you found quite intriguing. That's right. It was the winejobs.com summit at the Archer Hotel in Napa. This was a HR conference. And two things struck me. One is that you know, the wine industry really should look more and more to other industries, um, especially when it comes to marketing. But in this case, it had to do with HR. So two of the speakers, the keynote speakers, one was Mara Thomas, who is an author of, on a book around attention management, which is different from time management. This is attention management, which is a big deal for people these days, especially with technology, distractions from your phone, email, and the like. So she offered some really interesting insight on how to, you know, be better equipped to get more work done effectively. And then Kevin O'Done of Second State Leadership uh, spoke about, you know, different strategies in being a leader in the workplace. So both of these speakers are not from the wine industry, but I think what they shared uh, were very relevant to all the people in attendance. So the second takeaway was labor in the Napa Valley. So Ursula Zopp, who's the Regional Vice President of Talent and Culture at Auberge Resorts Collection, uh, mentioned that Competition is mounting in the Napa Valley when it comes to hospitality. So with the Archer Hotel, the Westin, uh, Napa is Napa town itself is really developing and coming quite posh, if I may say so. There's a Lululemon on First Street, as well as many other upscale retail shops, uh, restaurants, and hotels. So Napa Valley has often been described as Disneyland for adults uh, with very showy and posh uh, wineries up the valley. Now that's extending to the town itself and it's just more expensive to live here. Whereas the Napa town used to be kind of the more affordable place for uh, winery workers to live, uh, now it's becoming quite expensive. So labor is an issue, uh, finding good labor is an issue. And on that note, a good friend of mine uh, in the wine industry is looking to hire now, and the position offers $70,000 a year, but every applicant is asking for a base of $85,000. And, you know, you wonder why, but it's becoming kind of the minimum earnings to be able to live in Napa. Yeah, a lot of issues raised there, Katie, in that conference. I have to say, HR conference does not uh, excite me greatly, but it seems it's more interesting than it initially sounds. Uh, Labour is definitely an issue. Um, That's kind of mixed up with immigration and policies and immigration as well. But certainly the living costs of Napa. We moved to Napa five years ago when it really wasn't a destination. It was just kind of emerging as one. And now most tourists want to stay there and they want to base their day there rather than going into the valley. And there's certainly lots of high-end restaurants and high-end hotels and high-end experiences to enjoy, though it's getting a little um, out of hand, a little bit too luxurious, maybe. And the conference was at the Archer, and that's a very fancy new hotel, isn't it? What did you think of it? Yes, very luxe indeed, with a rooftop bar even. Yep, so lots of changes in the last five years and probably more to come. 
It'd be fascinating to see how Napa develops, both in um, how it finds labour and also the kind of tourists it attracts to the region. And now for the news. Harvest got underway this week in three of France's most famous wine regions, Champagne, Bordeaux and the Rhone. In Champagne, yields are set to be low after last year's bumper crop. The Committee Champagne, which sets the maximum permitted yields, set this year's crop at 10,200 kilograms per hectare, down from last year's 10,800. Although Bollinger's cellar master, Gilles Descôtes, believes producers will struggle to hit that limit. He predicts a fall of 20% in yields due to frost, hail, storms, powdery mildew, and, most significantly, heat. That heat came at the beginning of August, when temperatures hit record highs of 43 degrees C, causing grapes to burn and shrivel. Chardonnay suffered the most, and this year looks set best for Pinot Noir. There's still plenty of optimism for the harvest, though, with high levels of sugar and tartaric acid, with the added bonus of being able to use reserve wine from last year. Meanwhile, in Bordeaux, the harvest for Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc began for both Cremant and Still wines. As in Champagne, there were considerable heat spikes during the summer, but the weather is now considered ideal with low disease pressure. Welcome news, as last year, rot was a huge problem. After two successively difficult harvests, volume in 2019 is set to be in line with the 10-year average. A similar pattern follows in the Rhone. The harvest also set to be in line with the 10-year average. Picking started there on the white grapes also this week, 10 days later than last year's unusually early harvest. For the black grapes, harvest will probably start on the 20th of September, although some Grenache grapes have yet to go through the raison after being affected with couleur. So that's in France, Katie. How's the harvest uh, going in California? Well, we brought in some Grenache, Chardonnay, and some Merlot for Rosé in the past week. Overall, I think everyone was anticipating a later harvest, but now it seems like it's back on track. Uh, One thing is sure is that there is lots of fruit in California. The grape glut is going to be a great market for anyone in the private label or bulk wine business. So any of you buyers out there, be on the lookout for deals. Or if you're in the trade and interested in wine and want to try your hand in winemaking, this is a great time to get some cheap fruit. What an interesting idea, Katie. last week about the rising volume of New Zealand's exports, but not everything in the small country is plain sailing. An annual report just released called the Marlborough Model 2019 Viticulture Benchmarking showed that profits for New Zealand's largest wine region fell for producers over the last two years. Calculating profits before tax in NZ dollars per hectare, figures fell from 11,600 in 2017 to 10,000 in 2018, to 8,700 in the year up until June 2019. Reasons for the fall in profits include the rising cost of labor, caused in part by a 5% rise in the minimum wage in April, fuel prices, and having to deal with pests and diseases due to mealybug, trunk disease, and powdery mildew. However, with the quality of fruit as high as ever and global demand continuing to be on the rise, this fall in profits may be a recalibration rather than a cause of long-term concern. So what are your thoughts on the issue, Matthew? Well, I see the cost of labour once again is an issue, as it is um, here in California. And New Zealand's a small, isolated country, 
So attracting labour is no doubt quite difficult. That's right. The sheep actually outnumber the humans in New Zealand. and But the sheep do help out in the vineyard. They're known for helping with um, canopy management in particular. Yes, and cover crops too. Although with that labour, a mechanised harvesting is quite common in New Zealand. Um, so they're not as dependent on labour as some other regions are. Another thing that um, caught my eye in this report is that powdery mildew is an issue in New Zealand. It does have a maritime climate, so fungal diseases are going to be an issue. And you had a little encounter with powdery mildew this week, didn't you, Katie? That's right. This uh, happened with some Chardonnay that came in last week. And so powdery mildew, I found, poses a few issues in the winery. So one is that it not only affects the fruit and the juice uh, from from that specific lot, but can, it can also contaminate the winery equipment for other fruit that needs to be pressed or crushed. So we did a whole cluster press on this fruit to kind of isolate it into one press. And then the juice had to be tasted over the course of the pressing until the assistant winemaker determined that they could no longer taste the powdery mildew in the juice. And so I asked her, you know, how did she how was she able to identify the powdery mildew afflicted juice? And she said that it reminded her of dirty dog bath water. And having washed our dog this morning, I can attest that's not something I want to be drinking. And now for our spotlight on England. With the UK embroiled in political turmoil, let's turn to more positive news from the country. English sparkling wine only dates back to the 1990s, yet in less than 25 years it has gained a reputation for excellence and a serious rival, in terms of quality if not quantity, to champagne. Climate change is also helping England's wine industry, with warmer, drier and more consistent vintages in otherwise challenging growing conditions. 2018 was a record crop for UK wine, with official figures released this week declaring a total of 13.2 million bottles, or 1.1 million cases, produced. This more than doubles the previous record from 2014, which stood at 6.3 million bottles, or 525,000 cases. 2019 yields are set to be more normal, though still above average, with quality once again likely to be high. But overall, these figures show the industry going from strength to strength, with a total of 3 million vines planted in 2019. And it's not just sparkling wine, as still wine accounts for 39% of all wine produced in Britain. But the focus is on sparkling, and plantings are concentrated in southeast England, which has 76% of all vineyards, 2,720 hectares out of 3,579 across the UK. And sparkling wine has led a transformation not just in the reputation of English wine, but also of the grape varieties planted. Before the 1990s, any grapes planted were German crossings or hybrids. Now, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, the two classic champagne grapes, lead the way with nearly 60% of all plantings between them. Not surprisingly, Meunier is third. Fourth is Bacchus, a German crossing which produces white wine similar in style and profile to Sauvignon Blanc. So English wine is at an important point in its development. It's established a reputation for sparkling wine, still wine is growing, exports rose from 4% of total sales to 8%, worth £7 million in 2018, with the ambition to hit exports of £350 million by 2040. Which leads us to our wine of the week, and what is that, Katie? It's the Whiston Sparkling Rosé Non-Vintage. 
a sign of how far and how quickly English fizz has come that Whiston Estate only first planted champagne grapes in 2006, yet their wines are now available all the way over here in California. The soils on the South Downs of Sussex are chalky and very similar to those of Cote de Blanc and Champagne. The winemaker is Irishman. Ooh, help me out with this one, Matthew. Dermot Sugru. Who joined the team in 2006 after being winemaker at Nightimber, the winery who played the leading role in establishing sparkling wine in England. And one of my favorites, I have to say. This rosé is a blend of 50% Pinot Noir, 40% Meunier, and 10% Chardonnay, and it's delicious and a great representation of English sparkling wine, if I do say so myself. Vibrant acidity, elegant red fruits, and a round body with just a touch of sweetness. So how much does this wine go for a bottle? Well, here in California, it's a mere $30, which is a very good price for a wine of this quality. That is. I always found that with English sparkling wine, it was a little bit difficult because they're, it's quite expensive, so almost rivaling the prices of champagne. So really, when you're thinking about whether to have a champagne or an English sparkling wine, there's, there's not much reason to go for the English fizz if you can get champagne for the same price. Yes, so I was surprised this was only $30. Um, I was looking at the winery's own website, and in the UK, they sell this for £26.50, so I'm not sure how it's come all the way to California for just $30, but I'm certainly not complaining, because this is an exceptional wine. Coincidentally, uh, this producer, Whiston, was the first English sparkling wine that I tried here in California. So we moved here five years ago, and it was impossible to find any English sparkling wine. That's right, a friend of ours had to smuggle over a half bottle of Nightimber for us at Christmas. Yeah, and for a whole year, that was the only English sparkling wine we tried, so we were quite deprived. But then I found um, this producer, Whiston, in K&L, which is a large uh, wine shop in San Francisco, and could not resist buying it. And I shared it with some friends here in California who had never tried English sparkling wine before, and they were extremely impressed. And now, just four years later, English sparkling wine is quite possible to get it. There's a number of different labels and brands available here in California, and all of very good quality. And even Nightimber is available. When I... When I was living in the UK, the only country they exported to was Denmark, and now here they are in California. And on top of all that, climate change is working in their favour. Yes, one of the few countries which may actually benefit from climate change, making growing conditions just that little bit more straightforward. Cheers to that! So that's it for Wine Back Weekday this week. I'm Kate Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wine Up. Cheerio! Cheerio!